Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast about design and feminism. Today on the show, I am joined by the designer, researcher, curator, educator, and activist, Nina Paim. Nina is the co-founder and director of Futurist, an editorial and educational platform focused on the intersection of feminism, design, and politics. She's also the co-editor of a really great new book called Design Struggles, Intersecting Histories, Pedagogies, and Perspectives, which is this amazing collection of texts and talks and lectures around design for the otherwise that I just loved. She previously curated and edited another great book called Taking a Line for a Walk, Assignments in Design Education, and co-curated the Department of Non-Binaries at the 2018 FICRA Design Biennial. In this episode, we talk about all of that. Nina and I talk about the origins and evolution of Futurist and how it evolved into the editorial platform that it is today. We talk about her journey into design and the evolution of her own practice. And we also talk about the new book, Design Struggles, and how to make space for conversations for people who otherwise wouldn't have a seat at the table. If you like Scratching the Surface, I hope you consider supporting it on Patreon. We offer three monthly tiers, $3 for students, $5 for patrons, and $10 for super fans. Every single tier gives you access to all sorts of bonus content like monthly newsletters, early episodes, transcripts of every episode, as well as exclusive bonus interviews every month, all while helping to financially support this show. So if you like the podcast, if you want to see it continue, I hope you consider joining us on Patreon. You can visit patreon.com slash surface podcast for all the details and to sign up. Thank you, as always, for listening. And here's my conversation with Nina Paim. Let's start by talking about Futurist, because that's a a project that at least from the outside seems like it's um, kind of a big project for you and something that's taking up a lot of your time. Uh, And it's a a site that over the last year or so I've just loved. I think um, you're kind of publishing some of the best kind of interesting content around design right now. And so can you, maybe to to begin this conversation, can you talk a little bit about what Futurist is and how that came about? Wow. Okay. Uh, Simple question. Um, (laughs) Hard answer. Uh, I'll do my best. So I think there's like many stories with Futurist and I can tell you some of those stories and mm. I think other people will tell you different stories. Okay. Um, it kind of, it, one one beginning of it, It's it started, I think, uh, two years ago uh, when, when I was at the time uh, co-running this practice called Common Interest with mm-hmm. uh, Corinne Giesel, my former partner. Uh, and we were asked at the time by Vera Sacchetti and Matilda Kriskovsky to contribute to something to an exhibition they were planning at the time at the Kunstgewerbe Museum in Dresden, mm-hmm. which was called Add to the Cake, I think, Transforming the Roles of Female Practitioners. Right. Yep. Um, and and <laughs> to be honest, they came up with something like feminism, future. <laughs> I don't remember, <laughs> but it was like something like that, you know, and like, not um you have a room and maybe think about it and and then i think we sat together and and we we had this idea corinne and i um of kind of like how cool would it be if we could visualize you know all the stories and all the books and all the dreams and all the all the all that is not yet written you know all that is yet to come because a lot of times i think when we're critically discussing design we we spend a lot of time and energy like 
criticizing what is the problems and like maybe criticizing the planet. And we also have to make space to dream. We also have to make space to kind of like see what is yet to come. So the first iteration of Futures was a very simple website designed for this exhibition, which was very simple. You would go online on futures.org and then you could type in a title of a book that doesn't exist. And then it would kind of automatically create um, like a cover and, and it would have a blurb and you could pick the color and the fonts and all the fonts were designed by awesome female type designers. And it would somehow just sort of like you would visualize, you know, you could even choose like how many pages would it have and it would create books of different thicknesses. So it was just like an effort of imagining. And um, and that was our contribution to this show. And then the, the, the website was launched and like slowly people started putting their stories, right? And, um, and it started to grow very slowly. And I think not right off the bat, but we, we quickly like updated it. And then people could um, say if their books was, if the books that they were imagining was like completely speculative, or maybe this was a research uh, in process, mm. or a PhD. And then we realized that actually these things that we thought didn't exist, actually a lot of them exist. <laughs> okay. And then the question is like, how can you then make them visible how can you kind of you know how can you amplify those voices what are the structures that allow such stories to be published and then i think we got we were thinking about that and i think the the that little version of the website kind of traveled a little bit it went to different exhibitions it went to the porto biennial and then in porto in 2019 we decided to uh, show the project, I think, in a vitrine of a bar or a cafe. And then we had a meeting with people who were there for the biennial and we talked about how could this even become a reality? Could it become a reality? Mm. How, could we, like, how could we publish those stories that are missing that we really desperately want to read about, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then we, we applied for a small grant in Switzerland and we got that grant that basically allowed, gave us time and space to start thinking about what it could become, you know, how can we make that happen? And then, of course, one of the first obstacles that we faced was like, how do you even make a kind of a publishing, digital publishing endeavor in these days with like, everything is extremely precarious. And well, if you really want to take yourself seriously and like make a fem feminist publishing endeavor, you really have to think about how do you compensate people? What are the structures that you're employing behind the scenes, say? And then, and then I think we, we did what, what I really love to do. And I think Corinne also really likes to do, which is we went to libraries and we started reading books about the history of feminist publishing. And I remember I was completely immersed in all these books. They were like on my, on my bed. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, like I, I was just reading, I was just trying to figure out how other feminist uh, publishing endeavors had done things in the past. And that's pretty much where I was or we were when the pandemic hit. Mm. And it was, you know, like uh, Common Interest was a small nonprofit um, uh, design research practice. We depended a lot on, on like, you know, exhibitions, workshops and things like that. So there was just a lot of insecurity at first and we were very scared. Uh, so we were invited by this institution in France called Les Signes, and they're also the, the people who organized the Chaumont Design Festival to organize a workshop. And um, because, you know, all their program has been canceled in the spring because of COVID. So could you organize an online workshop? And we had all this research that we were doing. And we also had realized that so much, there have been so many activists that have digitalized 
so much, uh, so many like feminist publications from the past and all this material was available online. And then we had this idea like, okay, so could we do a workshop where we kind of bring people together and then we, we research together, you know, about the history of feminist publishing. Could we just collectivize this research that we were doing? And then we thought, oh yeah, we could do that. And then somehow, I think it's a bit mushy in my brain, but somehow uh, the same day we received an email from Madeline Morley, who uh, at the time was the editor at uh, Iron Design. And, and then it somehow all came together and Madeline joined us in this workshop. And we started envisioning first, I think in a very fuzzy way, like how could somehow workshop could be a way to bring people together and then publish. But we didn't know if, how this was going to work I see. and this is how the lip collective basically emerged lip for liberation in print which is actually a, a title it's a it's a it's a nod to a book by a, a feminist um researcher called agatha Bynes, mm. when she looks exactly at like history of feminist periodicals and very kind of fleety periodicals from the 60s and Anyhow, we, 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 the LIP Collective was a, was a group of 23 women and non-binary people who kind of met online during this first lockdown between April and May and June last year. And then we really, we met every week. We, we, each person was following or researching a different feminist periodical. And it was kind of magical. I mean, I remember those sessions being like really magical. Yeah. Meeting people from all over the world who are really interested and really passionate about this thing that you are really passionate about. And then just exchanging papers and just helping each other, reading each other's paragraphs, you know, giving each other insight and also just the push, you know, to kind of keep doing it. and like that understanding that your research has value and it matters and people want to read about it. And then this kind of like gave us the feeling that, you know, this could maybe be a model. And then we started together, the three of us, thinking about what could futurists be. And I think between October and uh, December last year, we, we organized a second workshop, which was called the Troublemakers Class of 2020. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That was hilarious. It was like basically everyone who's sort of like the misfit or the killjoy of design come together. <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's burn down the house. And, and that was yeah. That was really cool. But again, you know, the pandemic has never stopped happening. And then again, we are meeting um, uh, online. And this time with the LIP Collective, it was different because I think, you know, we started at the middle of the lockdown and slowly as we progressed towards summer, you know, uh, mm. restrictions were being lifted. So there was, a, there was a feeling of hope when we ended. And I think mm. with the troublemakers, this was almost the other way around as we started in October and then you know there was like the second or the third wave coming in some places and but it, we were all there for each other and I think that's really beautiful like to see how some so many of these connections that people kind of um, that that happened you know in through those sessions also led to other kinds of collaborations and people did other things together. Maybe the pandemic kind of influenced some of this, but it's interesting to me, and this is kind of kind of why I was asking you about the origins, is because so much of your work and the the kind of original version of Futurist, I guess, I guess you could call it like the original version, the the kind of speculative, you know, book project, how that and you and you've done work in exhibitions and programming, and and you're talking about how these kind of early iterations were in workshops. I'm 
I'm interested in how that turns into what is essentially now an editorial platform, you know, a publication, like you said earlier, how, how do you kind of take, or how did you take those ideas, this kind of, you know, everyone doing research and sharing these ideas amongst each other and turn that into something that could live online and be accessible to more people? Um, I mean, I think it's it's a progress. I think a lot of those ideas were already there as a, a let's say, an embryo in that very first LAP collective. Mm. But the question was like, how do you do that? You know, like right. I remember at the LAP collective, you know, we kind of had the idea that people could write at the end of the workshop, and then we mm. did a fanzine, and of course, like everyone sent their draft at the end, and you know, at the end, it was actually very, let's say. Ed, editorial intensive, you know, mm-hmm. um, and then with the with the troublemakers, it was we already or we already had started thinking the whole program of like uh, like the design of the program. How many sessions do we have? How do we organize the sessions? What are the the, the kind of dynamics that we go through? You know, as we kind of unravel our own research. Um, and for example, there was a moment where we, 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 we suggest that people read each other's texts and then, and then there's like feedback sessions. Um, and then do you do one draft or two drafts or, you know, or three drafts or how many sessions do you need? So like the whole design of like how to do that, how to do this sort of like collective fellowship thing mm-hmm. you know, that's mm-hmm. always in flux. And there's always like, we always try to improve based on what we did last. So with the troublemakers, I feel like we had way more time and then people could really research much more. Like we learned from the first, from the LIP collective, we were meeting each other every week. And then one week, you know, one week is not enough. It, it, it's right. like too little time for you to actually do any progress with your, what you really want to find out. So then already with the troublemakers, we had more space, but then also then with Against the Grain, which I co-curated and, and led with Sherry and Davis, um, we realize, okay, so maybe in the beginning we need a little bit um, less space because we're kind of like framing our research and kind of, you know, doing further reporting. But then towards the end, when we really need to write, we need to have a bit more time so that we can really concentrate and write. And then all these kinds of, let's say, learnings that we are, we are, we are learning as we go and we're trying to make it better every time. Um, this is like, for example, what we carry now for coding resistance, which is uh, something I co-curated with Maya Ober from Deep Patriarchize Design. And then Sherry is, again, a facilitator. And then we also invited Io Bisek, who is, um, who also be facilitating those sessions. So, you know, with every new person that joins in, we also learn different things. And then they bring different ways of mm-hmm. doing it. And then it also evolves and changes. So it's kind of how do you stay flexible and fluid? Right. In a way. How do you think about audience or readers for the site and you know for the site specifically but then how that relates to these participants in these workshops is there is there a kind of ideal person that you think this type of content and research and and workshopping is for no i think that i think that i think it's it's designed for those who really need it you know and 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 i and I really need it, you know? Right, right. So it's like for all of you. Yeah, totally. You know, That's like, how I think about this show too. It. You know, like we, we, we need it. Like we, I had, you know, uh, a str- I'm, I'm a troublemaker. I'm a, I'm a person who like has opinions and oftentimes <laughs> says too much. And I've, I've struggled to find places where I feel safe um, to talk mm. about the things that, that really matter to me. And I think, 
um, a lot of times within design, and here I'm thinking a little bit more specifically kind of like institutionalized places for design, like academia, museums, institutions, etc. There's already so much that you have to fight just to be in the room, you know, like you, there's so much that you have to kind of, and then, in, in, and oftentimes you're there in the room and you're the only one, you know, like you're the only like Latina in the room. You're the only person of color in the room. You're the only person who actually does not agree that, you know, we should all be reading this dude, you know? So, so I learned that it's important to have more people in the room. And I, I was really craving for these spaces where we can really talk about critically, you know, be fierce, be, be critical, but also be generous with each other and like not tear each other down and really like, you know, help mm -hmm. each other. And, mm -hmm. um, I think like I was really bruised by academia and this idea that like research is a lonely thing that you have to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, only endeavor. And like, you know, you have to go to a cabin in the woods and, you know, be a genius. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, okay. So I have a couple of questions around this and you're talking about all sorts of things that I'm interested in on this show and in my own work. Um, but, you know, you you referred to yourself as one of those troublemakers. You referred to the troublemakers as sort of the, like the misfits in design. I'm, I'm curious about your the, the trajectory of your work. And so you originally studied kind of graphic design proper. Is that right? Mm, mm, uh. No? Okay. <laughs> um, it's complicated. So I, I studied, so I'm from Brazil originally, and I... I first studied, I studied economics a little bit, and I studied philosophy a little bit, and then I ended up in design. So design was not my first choice. I always like to say that. I don't know why, but it, it wasn't my first choice. So, okay, so, okay, so hold on, hold on a second then. <laughs> so after that, that time in economics and philosophy, what was it about design that made it a third choice? Like, like why, why was that the next thing? I mean, thing? specifically the people in economics is that I just couldn't stand the people in economics. <laughs> I liked economics. I liked, I liked, you know, I liked sociology. I liked, I liked thinking, you know, I even like math. But hmm. the people studying economics, they were all like um, homophobic, really racist, hmm. really problematic. I, I just couldn't, like, I couldn't stand hmm. that, you know, I had to be this, I had to hide this whole other part of my life, you know, just to be hmm. around those people. And and then I feel like design is also a little bit a place where like misfits <laughs> somehow go. <laughs> right. I don't know. Like everybody was really free in my design school, you know, like in in in, in Rio and um, everybody. I felt like everybody were people were themselves. Like mm -hmm. they weren't mm -hmm. like I don't know. They weren't pretending. They were more like I just I don't know genuine. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. I had a conversation once with Prem Krishnamurti, and he has this theory that like misfits go and study design but maybe that's i think he's on to something yeah i i've definitely had that uh, conversations like that with multiple people before um yeah so so this this design education in brazil it wasn't just graphic design it was like design you know design okay. Everything. okay it's like you can design a train you can design a cup i can, see but it was very modernist and sort of like you know solutionist so i had also a lot of i had a lot of product design classes um, I see. Was okay. that interesting to you? I mean, the reason I'm asking, I mean, just I'm, I'm, these are leading questions because what I'm, I guess the question that I'm trying to ask is you studied design uh, in a sort of modernist solutionist context, but your work and how I came to your work and came to kind of see the work you do is very not that, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so I'm, I'm curious if, 
it, it's a two-part question. I'm curious if when you were studying that, was that interesting to you? Did you actually think you were going to be doing that type of design work? No. And then, okay, so then <laughs> can you talk a little bit about that evolution from that education into the type of work you do now that is spanning writing and publishing and curating and researching and leading workshops and okay. you know organizing groups? How does that transition happen? Okay, that's in hindsight, everything looks clear, right? But of like, course. Oh. That, uh, okay, so let's say, um, um, how do you say, like, let's go back to 2006 or something when I started my education in Brazil. I studied in a, okay, important to know, I studied in a public university in Brazil. Okay. okay. A state public university. The first uh, university in Brazil that adopted affirmative action policy in the early 2000s and made it mandatory that almost half of the student body was black, brown, indigenous, and people with disabilities. Mm. It's something that this law that um, um, started in the early 2000s is now 20 years old. Um, so that's very important. It's a very, right. you're like, you're entering a very diverse space. Uh, a very diverse space in a modern school that was founded in the 60s by former Haifgeum people that, you know, like Brazilians that went to the Haifgeum and studied there, that imported a very modernist, industrialist, you know, development oriented idea of design. Uh, and I think in my four years uh, of study there, I had like two female teachers. That's just like, oh, like wow. Context. Uh, wow. and, and it was hard, you know, like it was very tough. There were very, very strong ideas about what good design was, what bad design was. And, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, we had to read things that were traumatic, <laughs> mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, it being a public university, it was a very politically energized place, right? Mm. That's, the, that's the, you know, public university in Brazil. That's what it is. You know, we have like all the kind of, um the 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 base movement do you say that in english but like you know the kind of the ground the civil organized movement right 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 yep. inter interwine with the university sometimes they even have offices in the universities you know like mm. uh there is like my first i had a one month of class and then there was a strike there were always strikes you know discussions mm -hmm. about politics uh, th there was no separation and i think that's also part of what brazil is you know I think this idea mm. that somehow design can be neutral is only possible in places like Switzerland, where all the, <laughs> right. really, like where all the dirt yeah, you're exactly been, right. All the dirt of the world has been hidden from your sight. You know, all the trains arrive on time, and you think everything's fine. You know, the planet's not on fire. But in Brazil, it's unfortunately not possible to have this delusion. It everything is on fire all the time. So mm -hmm. the idea that design is not political or there is a, something called social design, which is different than design, it's mm -hmm. absurd. You know, it, mm -hmm. it doesn't make any sense. So um, even though, like, I, you know, I, I struggled and I was troublemaking with the classes, these students were organizing. We were, like, establishing the first student union. We were, like, I think making surveys to kind of, like, uh, complain about our teachers and then we were also organizing lecture series we organized exhibitions we were really together somehow doing stuff and and then of course you know when so i studied four years there and then i was like i'm not ready to graduate i need to have an experience in a proper design school so i went to the netherlands you know mm. I, I saved for one and a half year to have enough money to like live six months in the netherlands and when i think about that today i'm like <laughs> 
Jesus, you know. <laughs> but anyhow, I did that. And then it, it's also like, you know, a public school in Brazil, like things are falling down. Uh, computers don't work. You, you know, like there is like, mm -hmm. real, it's really, it can be really precarious somehow. And then I also, I remember like, you know, spending weekends cleaning like the workshop, you know, because I wanted to do silkscreen, but it wasn't possible to do silkscreen because it was so dirty and we had to clean. So we organized the students and we were like seven people cleaning the workshop in a weekend, you know? Uh, and then I arrived in the Netherlands, everything works, everything is beautiful, you know, pristine machines, all the possible neon colors you want to have to print your stuff. But then people are making fanzines about their poodles. And that really kind of like, you know, if that was like, yeah, it took yeah. me a while to somehow kind of, you know, understand. And then, of course, in hindsight, things make sense. I realized that a lot of the stuff that I was doing, organizing with the students, you know, kind of doing the union or like organizing lecture series or, you know, just doing, taking things by taking control, taking agency and doing it in a way that was designed. So after you studied graphic design, then you got an MA in design research. Can you talk about what an MA in design research is and how that kind of supplemented these interests that were already kind of fermenting in a lot of your work and a lot of the ways you were thinking about design? What did that other degree kind of help solidify for you? Ooh. Okay, how can I say that? So I moved to Switzerland in 2015 because I had a child. Mm. I... I and it wasn't really planned. And me and my, my partner is Swiss. So we moved to Switzerland and I ended up in the eastern end of Switzerland in a small town called St. Gallen, which is very, very hard for immigrants. Let's mm. put it like that. And I think it was like a combination of a lot of things, of becoming a mother, of becoming, of, of you know, I, before I was living in, in in the Netherlands and we were, you know, I was an international student. Mm -hmm. And then I, and afterwards I moved to Berlin and Berlin is a very cosmopolitan place. Mm -hmm. And I think the cultural shock of coming from that context into Switzerland, becoming a mom, you know, mm -hmm. uh, it yeah, was just wow. a lot. And I think part of my, to being really honest, part of my motivation of wanting to pursue an MA had to do with the fact that I just wanted to get out of the house. I just wanted to, yeah. to like, you know, reclaim some time back to me. And I had very few contacts in Switzerland. I knew very few people and I needed to get some grounding here. Mm. And uh, my MA ended up being an investigation around the history of a publisher, uh, mm. which coincidentally was a publisher that was based all their lives in the, in the, a very, you know, 10 minutes away from St. Gallen. So, and it, oh. they're, they're called Arthur Nigli Verlag. And they are the Swiss publisher that published Grid Systems and a lot of other books, which are still in, in print today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Graphic design. And I was really shocked like that, that kind of like, these were the books that I was recommended to study when I was in Brazil. So some of these books were my design manuals in Brazil. And these books were published by this publisher which was located in this canton of Appenzell where, you know, women were allowed to vote in 1991, 19, 19, uh, if I'm not mistaken, and by federal, by a federal court <laughs> vote, you know, it's like, so for me, this was also a shock, like how is like kind of like digging, so I started digging into this, this sort of history of this modernist publisher that was just around the corner from my house 
and um and trying to understand you know like a, a lot of i had a lot of questions it was a bit of a savage research but in hindsight i think i was trying to do i was doing some kind of ethnography i was trying mm -hmm. to understand what was switzerland you know like what right what is this place? it's interesting to hear kind of these this like origin story <laughs> for you dean in a way because it in in a way it kind of explains a lot of the subjects that you explore in all of your work i'm thinking about uh taking a line for a walk which was kind of this like in sort of invest quasi investigation into design education i'd like to talk a bit about your, your the new book that you edited design struggles which i also mm -hmm. think is dealing a lot with questions of uh kind of decolonizing and rethinking canons and rethinking how we talk about about design and You've explored these subjects in book form, on futurists, in exhibitions, in these workshops. And something I think about a lot who, who's interested in, you know, someone interested in kind of tangential subjects is how to, how to talk about them in contexts where they are unexpected because otherwise it sometimes feels like they're just like, you know, kind of like, only talking to other people in the room who already are like interested in these things, you know? And so, you know, there's, I, I, I want to be careful how I say this, but there's like so many designers who just like have no interest in questioning the modernist canon, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. And are there ways to kind of have these conversations in a way for people who have never thought about it or who would not walk into an exhibition, uh, to kind of be introduced to these ideas. Yes, I mean that's something that I think a lot about. But um, so I, I really, for me, it's like a political stance to try and be, and and be, let's say, broad audience. Mm -hmm, <laughs> that's, like, mm -hmm. I mean, that's a political. I stance. know what you mean. Yeah. Like, to, to like to 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 bring people into the conversation. That's like to to include rather than than to exclude by, for example, language or or accessibility or other 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 barriers you know um so that's mm -hmm. something that is really important i don't know i think with a lot of these projects that you were listing i think um i tried to do um i tried i was uh, many ways like sort of like reacting to the maybe not reacting but kind of i was trying to do with a something with the conditions that kind of presented themselves to me in a way you know like right um i don't know if that that makes sense yeah and i want to be clear i was not saying that your work was ex excluding or was only talking to other people it's just I, I think i think you do a nice job of moving between mediums um like i'm also thinking about the department of non-binaries you mentioned prim earlier that you did at the the, the ficra biennial and, and i'm just curious if you think about kind of the mediums or the formats or the context and how that can include different people who otherwise mm -hmm. would not like the actual kind of like form of the research or the presentation or the workshop you know what I mean how does that then yeah. kind of influence that for you I mean one thing I can say is that I think about all of these things that that you listed as spaces you know even mm -hmm. for me like taking a line for walk you know it started as an exhibition and then it mor mm -hmm. morphed into this publication but I always thought about it as like a space you know it's a space where people are brought together right mm, mm, and mm -hmm. every space i think creates i mean there's always like 
every every space creates inclusion or exclusion you know there's no such thing right. as an all all inclusive right. space you know right and i right. think like the, the 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 trick is to being conscious about what are the sort of like exclusions that are taking place in whatever space that you are designing and that you are inserted in you know like thinking about mm. who's not there and thinking about um how how you know what and the thing is like you cannot do this alone you have to do this right. with others because i'm only able to see what i am able to see with from my perspective my experience and my you know set of eyes yeah uh, and there are things that i'm not able to see and i think the the challenge of like working that's why i feel like collaboration is so important is because by learning from other people what kind of let's say mechanisms of exclusion are taking place you are actively actually expanding your mm -hmm. in a way so mm -hmm. i think about um i think about about all of these things in a way as spaces as spaces for encounter like for me an exhibition is not so much about the representation of what you know what is what it shows but what kind of conversations can it right. you know uh steer, steer or or uh, generate you know like and how does it hold people in the room you know like what kinds of thoughts can be can happen in that space and and the thing is like you cannot really control that it's a work of hope yeah you yeah. you do your best and you hope it ma magic will happen but you never know right so like you you try to make the condition it's like it's like gardening in a way like yeah yeah no i love that and i think that's an, a really nice way to to summarize your work, because what struck me in, in preparing for this conversation and thinking about you and thinking about the project you worked on is how much your role appears to be bringing groups of people together around ideas, whether that's like you and one other person to kind of collaborate on something like like with, with Corinne and, and Common Interest, or whether that is an exhibition or Design Struggles, which which we can talk about uh, in a second, which is the book that, that you edited, where that you know, that was, that started as a symposium, right? Yep. And yep. then turning that into a book. And so I'm kind of, I'm kind of curious if you could talk about that a little bit, kind yeah. of getting people together to, to present these topics and then the act of translating that into something printed, which then reaches a different public. How, how do you think about that? Yeah. Okay. So that was a long process because just when I started, I finished my MA and then I wanted to leave that place. I was like, I'm out of here. You know? right. <laughs> I'm yeah. gone. And then we moved to Basel. I mean, my partner and my son. And I think I was like looking for jobs. And I presented myself at the at the Academy of Art and Design here. And like, I was like, hello, here I am. My name is Nina. And then I met Claudia Marais. And we had lunch together. And I talked about my interest. And she was like, wait, maybe I have something for you um there is you know uh this thing called the swiss design network which is a kind of um yeah it's like a uh, an, um, an association of all the different mas or like research institutions for design in switzerland and every two years they make a conference this time is basel that is hosting and i am sort of the chair uh claudia marais was then um the head of the Institute of Experimental Design Media Cultures. I never know how the full name of this. <laughs> Sounds right. I, I XDM. Uh, so, and then she's, she's, I'm hosting, but I really need support. Uh, would you like to work on this uh, with me? And then, and then I said, yes. Um, and at that point I had never attended an academic conference in my life. Mm. You know? Like I had mm -hmm. no idea what academic conference are. 
And then she was saying, no, no, but we have to have a chair and there's a governor or something like that. And like there was all these structures that come with academic conference. I was like, okay. And there's yeah. review and there's this and that. And I think yeah. it was really cool that I had never attended a conference because I was like, why? Why does it have to be this way? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, um, and then one of the things that, that um, so it's an academic conference. You basically have to pay or your institution pays for you to attend, uh, right. which is a very exclusionary thing right. already, you know? Um, so uh, that was something that really bothered me. And and um, I, together with um, Judah Sommerfeld, I teamed up with Judah Sommerfeld and we proposed something called Building Platforms, which was basically occupying the huge, pristine white lobby of the school where nothing ever happens um, and bringing uh, three different like part academic platforms. So this was Depatriarchized Design, which had just started, uh, Decolonizing Design Group and Precarity Pilot. Mm-hmm. Just bringing these people and then having them like hang in the space, uh, organize sessions together or, you know, co-run sessions in that space. There should be food, there should be books, there's going to be a mm-hmm. hammock and plants and people are going to. And, and, and that was really, that's how I met Maya Ober, for example, who mm-hmm. at that point had just started the Petriarchize Design. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, Maya met some of the part from some of the members of the decolonizing design that had just, um, that came for it. So it, it was like, you know, really literally building platforms. And I, I can, I think like now, again, in hindsight, um, several years later, you know, those relationships that kind of started at, you know, in that, at that moment, um, became friendships and became, you know, things happen after that, um. So I think that was a really kind of like a crucial uh, part of, of, of the whole conference. And it, because it was also the place where we had the coffee breaks, you know, so you would have sessions on the, on the second or the third floor, but then everybody would come down and everybody would be there. And there was like this scaffolding, like this constructions, scaffolding structure, which was used to somehow... Uh, host these different sessions that the decolonizing design group or depetriarchized design or precarity piloty pilot were hosting um that was really you know it was like it became i think the heart of the conference and and that yeah. was just, that was also when i understood that like you need to um you need to have enough enough critical people in an audience to switch or to transform the conversation but you don't have to be the majority you know, it's not mm. it's just about not being one person in the audience because then you don't want to speak. But if you have two or three more or maybe a few, you can already change the, the direction of the conversation. Right. Um, and that was like a feeling of like a, a realization that I was like, aha, you know, it's not, you know, it, yeah. it felt hopeful. And then uh, so Claudia was, of course, you know, the the the, the coordinate, co- co- coordinator of the conference. And I was working together with her. And then after it all uh, ended, there was like a lot of, uh, we received so many emails and people were so enthusiastic about the discussions that had happened. And, and then Claudia asked if I wanted to continue working on it um, and make a publication. And we decided that it was not supposed to be like a, like a conference proceedings, but more of a sort of like departing from the conference and somehow trying to invite some more voices that were not there, you know, um, and and that's what we tried to do. 
And I'm very happy that the book is open access, so anybody can download. It's free for anybody. So that's for me very cool. Yeah, I, that's what I mean. That's exactly what I was going to say. Is that what's so fascinating to me about the book, and it's it's great, by the way, um, is that it is it is you know free for people to download, um, but that it's also you know that it comes from this kind of academic setting, you know, with all of this structure, you know, that you pushed up against. But you read it, and it doesn't feel academic. You know, it doesn't feel it. it it, it's it's easy to read. It's easy to to digest. It's it's accessible in the content also, and it also just like looks nice, which a lot of <laughs> academic books don't. Um, how how did you kind of think about kind of translating that into translating that kind of experience and the coffee breaks and this kind of like vibrant conversation into a book that had a beginning and end? Um, you know, that would live on beyond kind of the that original kind of, you know, couple days. So some of the texts that are in the book were 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 presented during the conference. I think, right. for example, uh, Cheryl Buckley's uh, piece was basically, I mean, originally her keynote speech. And then in the meantime, it took a while for the book to, to be published. She published it elsewhere, but then we republished it. Uh, so some of the texts were, of course, very, like, they were part mm -hmm. of the conference. Right. Then some others were like, uh, like for example, Zoe's text. You know, Zoe is my supervisor now. I'm, I'm currently doing a PhD. Um, it's my. She's writing about some very, um, uh, import, like some very strong transformation that were happening in my school. So uh, there were like, you know, a kind of. Um, there was like we were talking to. We were trying to broaden a, a little bit the, the, um, the whole field or include people that were not present in the conference and just as a, using the conference as a starting point. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I think like this, what you mentioned, and I'm very happy that, that you felt that way, that it's accessible. Um, that was um, editing. I think we were like in long back and forth with the, with the authors and trying to, you know, trying to make things that, you know, move a little bit the academic tone of things and uh, specifically ask people to make it, if possible, broad audience. And um, and we had a wonderful copy editor, Phil Weber, who also did an excellent job. And I think the design is the, the credit is goes to Lotte Schroeder, who's a mm -hmm. really brilliant designer, um, and to Astrid Vostermans, who's the publisher. So it's really a collective effort uh, of many people. And Claudia and I were in in sync in this idea of trying to make it broad audience. But at the same time, right. the book is funded by the Swiss National Science Foundation. So it is a peer, golden peer review. You know, there was also a process of peer review, whatever. <laughs> that right. I, I have a couple questions to to wrap up. You just mentioned, you know, that you're, you're working on a PhD. I'm curious kind of how you negotiate these different roles that you play as like the PhD student where you're kind of, you know, working on long-term research with editing Futurist, which I imagine has some shorter, you know, shorter kind of timeframes. You're organizing exhibitions and like these different kind of timescales. How do you think about that? How do you, how do you kind of work with people to put on events in a shorter time while also engaging in this kind of long-term research of your own um 
I can maybe maybe I should just say it's not easy. Right, <laughs> it's, <not laughs> it's that's why I'm asking because I'm trying to figure it out too. Feeling a burnout, and I had you know so. Um, I I can say that I take a lot of there's future has has been giving me so much energy, and it's just such mm. a pleasure to see also people flourish. You know, people yeah. that maybe come and then at first they are like insecure if this whatever topic they are researching doesn't if it even matters if you know if it's even important and then they are like the majority of the people uh that we work with are not native english speakers i'm not a native english speaker um it's writing is super hard for me it's a struggle so i i think it's so empowering to come together and see how we can accomplish together you know and how we can really lift each other yeah. up uh, so I get a lot of, um, um, yeah, satisfaction through this work. And I think that's in a way addictive uh, because mm. it, it nearly brought me to a, a burnout last um, last semester. And I it also coincided that I started a PhD and maybe I thought I could do too many things at the same time. Um, but... I'm trying, you know, I'm trying and uh, it's not perfect, but um, yeah. uh, I don't want the people to have this. It's not magical. It's like a lot of uh, hard work and, um, and, and so much support of so many people. And I think that's how I can do it. Um, with the PhD, I'm actually doing it back at SG in Brazil. Mm. Um, and I applied during the pandemic because I just really felt like this urge to reconnect with the discussions that are happening in um, in Brazil and in Latin America as a whole. And um, after my MA, I had kind of decided that I was not going to pursue a PhD. Mm. <laughs> it was a, <laughs> a traumatic experience. I was very like this whole idea and the apparatus of um, white academia. I, I thought, yeah. you know, I felt like I'm going to, it's going to destroy me. Like I had a feeling, I, I had this image, you know, if I'm a flower, and I, I will, yeah. there will be no light there will be no oxygen i will yeah. you know suffocate so i i didn't see the possibility of doing a phd uh, after the ma and um what happened is that like last year during the pandemic i started watching all these uh, live videos that were organized by the laboratory of design and anthropology at sg which um, started i think in the in 2014 or 15 and today is the biggest laboratory of the of the PhD program. And it, it, there was just so many researchers, you know, there was like indigenous women in academia and I don't know, somebody researching the, 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 this, this affirmative action program that I mentioned and another person researching like design and politics. You know, there was just so many things that were resonating with the things I care about. I felt like, wow, these are my people. I should just go there, you know? I, 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 when I saw that this was happening, it just felt so fertile and so full of energy and love. And, and I thought, okay, that's a PhD that I want to be inside and mm. I want to be there. And I also think it's important in the current political climate, uh, you know, with this horrible yeah. government that we have, that we fight for the public university in Brazil, you know, and it's, we are, that we occupy those spaces. So for me, it's also political. There's a political dimension in this um, yeah. work and, Again, as I mentioned, my supervisor is a really uh, brilliant person, Zoya Anastasaki. She's a trained 
a designer, but then she turned into anthropology. She, her MA and her PhD were in anthropology. Um, we share a lot of interests and there are different kinds of practices. There's different kinds of way of doing research and uh, reading each other and writing together. And all these things for me are the way how I always wanted to think and be, you know, so yeah, that's kind of the reason. Yeah, that's great. Um, I think that I think that's really nice. I think it's a nice way to wrap up this conversation. So I'll ask you the question that I use to end uh, every episode. What are you reading right now? I am reading a book which is called "They Didn't See Us Coming," which is the his- history of the feminist fe- feminism in the nineties. That's what I'm reading right now, and it's it's really cool because I grew up in the nineties and. Um, there was this sort of like idea that somehow feminism was dead or we didn't need feminism anymore. And, you know, girl power is all about kind of like, you know, um, sex spice girls or something. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and it's really amazing because it's also, it's it kind of, it's bringing me back into the memory lane of my own teenage years and how I was sort of doing riot girl. I don't know, <laughs> troublemaking, you know, and, and uh, kind of putting all of that into a bigger kind of context. So I really, it is by Lisa Livenstein. I love that it comes back to troublemaking too. That's like kind of the, the underlying theme of the entire episode. Nina, this was so great. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. This episode was recorded on August 11th, 2021. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can support the show on Patreon and find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.